friends. My name is Zach Allen. I'm the lead pastor at Grace Church of Alma, nestled in the ruralish Arkansas River Valley. We're a church for the curious and bored, and we focus on trying to learn how to do the kinds of things that Jesus did and said to do. Well, this past Sunday was Trinity Sunday. So what in the world is that? Well, Trinitarianism is a foundational doctrine about the nature and essence of God. And we'll come back to that a bit later, but what about Trinity Sunday? What's that about? Here at Grace Church, we have utilized the church calendar for some years now, but we've eased into it over time, adding a little more each year as we go. And just about every church utilizes this calendar, often called the liturgical calendar, to to one degree or another. If you've ever been in a church which celebrates Christmas or Easter, you've participated in this use of the church calendar, possibly without even knowing it. If you've come to us from uh, more mainline denominations or even Roman Catholicism, you're definitely familiar with this practice. But there's also Advent, uh, the other 11 days of Christmas. There's Epiphany, Lent, six more Sundays in Easter, and Pentecost Sunday. In those six seasons, we retrace the life of Jesus to reground ourselves in the redemptive story that we're all participating in. So what else is there? And why do some churches only observe those two days, Christmas and Easter, while others observe even more than we do here at Grace Church? And I can't speak for them, but at Grace, we have always sought to seek and utilize the gold we find in various Christian traditions. I believe God is at work in all of them, in all their various beliefs and practices from the Southern Baptist to the Pentecostal to the Greek Orthodox to the Quaker, the Roman Catholic, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. The Christian faith is as broad and diverse as just about anything else that exists in this world. And if God is at work in those places, just as much as I hope God is at work here at Grace, I can't help but ask, what can we learn from them? If there is something in those traditions which could help us connect more with God, each other, the world, then why shouldn't we at least explore those possibilities? This is very much at the heart of this church. We are, after after all, anchored in Christ, aren't we? We are firmly held in his grasp, right? We are deeply loved, are we not? And if what the scripture speaks is true in Romans 8, 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then truly, what is there to fear in such explorations? I'll tell you, I agree with Paul, nothing. And I agree with 1 John four eighteen that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. For you math people, love and fear are inversely proportional. We are loved. We are held. We are anchored. We are safe. We are secure. The knowledge of this security in Christ, empowered by the Pentecost Spirit of God within them, is what enabled the first Christians to take this faith into those various other places. And subsequent generations, even us and those beyond us, will always find themselves at this crossroads of staying put in the comfort of Jerusalem or having the faith to go wherever God may lead, which is almost always not comfortable. 
Sometimes this means being a missionary to unreached peoples. Sometimes it means confronting injustices back home. Sometimes it means learning to work or parent in new ways. And sometimes it means having a willingness to think about what we think about when we think about God. I think this is beautiful, that God is at work in all of these traditions, and it speaks to the reality of a universally applicable faith. That is a faith which is literally for everyone, which must always seek and take form in the various contexts in which it finds itself. The kingdom of God is transnational, multi-ethnic, and multicultural. In other words, Christianity is malleable, like foil, both by definition and by necessity. This is a very good thing. If Christianity were not this way, it wouldn't have survived beyond its original time and place. Jesus, you'll recall, along with every original disciple and more, was ethnically and religiously Jewish. And most of the people in our church and listening to this podcast probably aren't. And so as the faith spread, it took on many different shapes and forms. Different ideas began to emerge, and many different conversations were had about what Christians ought or ought not do or believe. We can see the first recorded instance of such a conversation in Acts chapter 15. Reading from the NRSV, as usual, in verses 1 through 2, we're told, Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. In other words, there was a pretty significant disagreement going on in this church in Judea. There were some people, particularly some followers of Jesus who were also Pharisees, who insisted that Gentile converts, that's again everyone who is not ethnically Jewish, like you and me, most likely, must follow the law of Moses. And the men must have the foreskins removed from their manly bits as adults. Thank you, Paul and Barnabas. Continuing in verse 6, the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. And the conclusion in verse 19, Therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, 
but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. This was a monumental and defining moment in the life of this fledgling church. And please notice how this came about. There was disagreement, dissension, debate, conversation, because there was no clear instruction on this matter. This was a new reality with new possibilities. There was no instruction book for how to be a Christian church, so they got to write it themselves. I'm sure in this debate, Peter was pondering that moment when the Lord first sent him to Cornelius, the Italian centurion. That moment recorded back in Acts chapter 10 when the Lord gave him a vision of various kinds of animals, both clean and unclean according to their tradition, descending on a sheet and instructed Peter to kill and eat. This was very much against his tradition, against what he had been taught, the law of Moses. And so Peter declines. And three times the Lord speaks to Peter, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. What was before unthinkable is not anymore. The point of this vision, of course, was to instruct Peter not to exclude Cornelius on the basis of him being a Gentile, someone who, according to Peter's tradition, was unclean or profane. And so in this early council in Acts 15, Peter reasons, we have witnessed the Spirit of God working in and among them without them having to do anything we've had to do as Jews. So who are we to burden them with this now? God has declared them clean. Who are we to say they are unclean? The reason none of us today have to live by the law of Moses was because Peter, Paul, and Barnabas testified that God was at work among the Gentiles as evidenced by the Holy Spirit. And really, these men were merely continuing the great tradition from which they came. The Jewish teachers of old had always engaged in this sort of debate as scriptures were interpreted and reinterpreted, applied and reapplied, always in an effort to be true and faithful to what they sensed God was doing in and among them. They would say things like, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, and if that sounds at all familiar, it's because that's exactly what Jesus himself was saying and doing in the Sermon on the Mount. So what does all this have to do with Trinitarian doctrine? Well, everything. And we'll come back to that. But first, I want to show you another example of what I'm trying to get you to see. Something I think speaks directly to what many of us are experiencing right now in our world. Before we proceed, though, I want you to know that this may be the first time you've ever encountered some of the things I'm about to tell you. And unless you've studied a bit of church history, these things may bring you a bit of discomfort, but don't run away from that. Lean into it, because it is our history, and it's true. So around the year 144 AD, an important Christian theologian uh, and evangelist in the early church named Marcion of Sinope began to preach that the benevolent God who sent our Savior Jesus into the world was the true supreme being. No disagreements there, right? But Marcion also taught this supreme being was different from and opposed to the malevolent demiurge or creator God from the Old Testament. And now we've got a problem. <laughs> but I think 
I think it's hard to blame Marcion for coming to this conclusion. If you've read both the Old and New Testaments, it is perfectly reasonable to ponder, wait, why does Jesus seem so much different from the God of the Old Testament? How do we reconcile the God who is love, as revealed in Jesus Christ, with the seemingly violent depictions of God in the Old Testament? If you've ever wondered this yourself, and I certainly have, you are in good company, because while Marcion's solution was rejected, this is still, almost 1,800 years later, a major topic of discussion within Christian theology. The early Christian thinkers did not say exactly how this works, but they did meet and discuss, much like they did in Acts 15, and decided to maintain the unity of God from the Old Testament to Jesus. Which takes us to another really interesting point. Notice I didn't say the unity of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Why? Because, and this is a very important detail, at this point, over 100 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament as we know it did not yet exist. Another fascinating thing about the Marcion story is that he introduced the first set of what he considered to be authoritative Christian writings. In short, he provided the first ever New Testament. Marcion's collection included 11 books. There was a shorter version of Luke's gospel and 10 of Paul's epistles, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and one you probably never heard of called Laodiceans. It's fascinating, isn't it? Up until now, and this is significant, this wasn't even a topic of conversation. Nobody was saying, hey guys, we need to make a list of books and call it the New Testament. Marcion's was first. Before Marcion, nobody else had even gone to the trouble of collecting Paul's writings. These writings were certainly important in the early church, but in a very different way than they are in churches today. And while his list and theology were rejected, it led the early church to think seriously about this matter. Various theologians and leaders proposed various lists, or what we call canons, and there was much discussion about this for the next 200 years. When in 367 AD, a fellow named Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, gave the exact list we have today that would later be formalized as the New Testament canon. And while there was agreement among the churches of the East— in the churches of the West, the two dominant factions at the time, as early as the 5th century, this canon was not dogmatically codified for Catholics until the Council of Trent in the year 1546. For Calvinists in the Gallic Confession of Faith in 1559. For the Church of England in the 39 Articles in 1563 and for the Greek Orthodox at the Synod of Jerusalem in the year 1672. In other words, Christians did not have a unified conception of what we now call, what we now take for granted as the Bible, until the church was over 350 years old. 350 years old. And even that was not as you might have thought or hoped, but in reaction to Marcion's heresy. 
350 years without the New Testament. That's longer than the United States has even been around. And it was just about 500 years ago before this was the case dogmatically. My point here is not to make you doubt the Bible. I love the Bible. I trust the Bible. And I think you should too. I teach from it every time I get on stage on a Sunday morning or talk here on the podcast. What I do want you to see in these two examples is that from the beginning, Christians have believed many different things about many different things. And from the beginning, they have voiced these disagreements and sought to find commonality whenever possible. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have had discussions and debates about these and a host of other things. This is what we do. Another such debate was the Arian controversy. And oh boy, was it heated. I mentioned Athanasius of Alexandria a few minutes ago. Well, he and a priest and theologian named Arius, also from Alexandria, had some pretty big disagreements, one of which had to do with the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Arius taught that the Son came into being through the will of the Father and thus had a beginning. Athanasius, on the other hand, insisted the divine nature in Jesus was identical to that of the Father, and that Father and Son have the same substance. Now that's some complicated stuff, and I don't really want to spend time belaboring the theological intricacies of this disagreement. It, it, it is long and complicated. It's important, but it's long and complicated. And if you want to learn more about it, uh, it's really easy to find online. Suffice it to say instead that ultimately Athanasius' position won out after over 55 years of some intense disagreement. In the year 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, a creed was developed most of us are familiar with even today. Uh, we even sing a song about it recently. Uh, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. Uh, so on and so forth. Sorry, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> the, uh, it was the Nicene Creed. For the record, when people talk about the early church, they generally mean before this council in 325 AD. But here it is, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. While this was official, it was not widely accepted. And debate continued. And please note, this isn't just some disagreement about whether or not there should be a fountain in the foyer or how much money should be budgeted for the youth ministry. It was utterly foundational. Ultimately, the Nicene decision was reaffirmed at the Council of Constantinople uh, in the year 381. 
again, about 55 years later, all but ending the controversy. This is Trinitarian doctrine. I told you we'd get there, didn't I? In a nutshell, it's the doctrine which states there is one and only one God. God eternally exists in three distinct persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit, and so on. Perhaps you received this idea early on in your life of faith and thought it was explicitly taught in the Bible, but it's not. The word Trinity is not there. This reality is hinted at, to be sure, but it isn't obvious to the plain reading of the Bible unless you read it already assuming it to be true. Instead, this doctrine, like whether the Gentiles had to follow the Mosaic law, like whether or not God uh, who sent Jesus was the same God in the Old Testament, and like which writings should be included in the New Testament. All of this came about as a result of Christians sharing ideas and hashing things out over long periods of time. The Encyclopedia Britannica article on this subject mentions something really important I want you to see. It says, Those great debates must not be seen as involving only theologians and churchmen. Far from it. The common people were very much caught up in the arguments of the theologians, even demonstrating in the streets with banners and chants in support of one side or the other. The Arians, moreover, engaged the public in a relentless fight against the main supporters of the Nicene decision. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's what we do. It has always been this way. And just in case it needs to be said, I want to be abundantly clear that I wholeheartedly affirm Trinitarian doctrine. Jesus Christ is the God-man. The Trinity teaches us that God has always existed as three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is indeed a mystery, but we don't need to understand how it works for it to affect us. This doctrine is important for a host of theological reasons with everyday ramifications, but in my opinion, there is one reason which reigns above all others. And here it is. It tells us that at the very core of God's being is a relational reality. There is mutuality and there is love. At the center of the source of reality, there is love. And so while we may at times disagree about things, as the church has always done, sometimes vehemently, we must always remember our God is love and calls us to walk in this love with himself, ourselves, and each other. There is nothing wrong with disagreement. They are natural. But how we conduct ourselves in those disagreements says everything about what we really believe about God. We don't run away. We lean in. We embrace. We love. Because this is the gospel. This is church. A fellowship of devotion under the Lordship of Christ in spite of our differences in nationality, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and ideas. This is who we are. And acting in the contrary is perhaps to deny the gospel's truth. May we, 
as we reject the comfort of Jerusalem as those first disciples did and venture into those uncomfortable spaces, God leads us by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. May we do so echoing the words of Jesus after his resurrection. Peace be with you.